welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. This week I'm talking to the editor of Strong Words magazine, Ed Needham. Ed is a veteran of magazines in the UK and US. In the 1990s, he edited the massively popular FHM before moving to New York to launch and edit the same title. Later on, he would go on to become managing editor of Rolling Stone magazine and editor-in-chief of US Maxim, which at that point was the biggest selling men's magazine in the world. In 2018, Ed decided to combine his experience with his passion for books and created a brand new magazine called Strong Words. Written and edited by the man himself, the magazine is packed full of interviews, news and reviews. There are over 100 books featured in each issue. Ed, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hi. Hi. Pleasure to be here. Well, thanks very much. I'm going to kick off straight away, like I do with all of my guests, by going right back to your childhood. You were born in Loughborough, mm-hmm. and your family moved to a village just outside Cambridge when you were eight. In your own words, you had an unremarkable childhood. <laughs> but were stories and books part of your life as a child? Well, not especially, no. I mean, I say it was unremarkable because it was in the countryside, and it's the kind of childhood that I think anybody who lived outside of a city would be familiar with. You know, it wasn't high on anything eccentric or there was nothing sort of the outlier about it. So that's why I describe it to you as unremarkable. But um, <laughs> no, it wasn't. I didn't grow up in a particularly bookish house. You know, I don't remember either of my parents reading a book when I was a kid. There weren't books lying around. I started reading when I was quite young and I enjoyed, you know, I've worn glasses all my life. So it was definitely marked from a very early age to go the bookish route, I think. And the things I liked, though, were very much standard texts of the day. So the Ladybird books and Mr. Men, lots of blight. And I really like folk tales and things from Denmark and Russia and things like that when I was small and Edward Lear and that kind of thing. It's quite a range there. We've talked to quite a few people in this podcast and unsurprisingly, an awful lot of them have memories of Ian Blyton as their kind of first book. But we also keep hearing about Mr. Men and it's really funny because they're so timeless and they're kind of an obvious choice, I guess, because I think everyone gets introduced to them at some point in their life. But it's just so interesting how books like that really stand the test of time. Yes, they are sort of magical, aren't they? But they're very clever in their design as well, I think, is the size of them and the illustrations. If you look at the stories of Mr. Men, there's not an awful lot to them, but the packaging and the design and the presentation is absolutely magical. And the visual characterization of those characters makes them truly memorable, much more so than the story itself. The stories are actually a bit on the thin side. Yeah, totally agree. They're very grabby as books as well because of the colour. Was there a point in your childhood where you mentioned the fact that because you were wearing glasses, you kind of (laughs) fell along a certain, I guess kids are put into kind of camps, aren't they, quite young by their peers? was there a point where you remember kind of thinking, oh, actually, books are something I really enjoy and maybe read more than others? Because you were a voracious reader. Did that happen during your childhood or did that really come as you got older? I don't know. No, I don't think I was massively sort of voracious. And I was th- kind of thinking about this, that the children find a sort of way themselves, but also because they've got no idea what's going on with books. I think sometimes adults miss a chance to push them on a bit because I was kind of thinking about The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe 
that was read to me at school by the teacher, thinking, oh, that was amazing. But Mm -hmm. no one ever then said, and actually this author has written loads of other books and you can find them such and such a place. So it just kind of came to an end. Whereas if I'd have been told, if you'd like more, then I'm sure I would have had more. And so children, I think they live in this slightly odd state of trying to piece the world together for themselves. So for example, in a a recent issue of Strong Words, I did a piece about Hilary Mantel. So I have a feature in the magazine each issue, which is called How to Write, because obviously a lot of readers fancy themselves as writers and want to know how to write. But my feature, How to Write, is about everything that happened in people's lives that led up to the writing of a certain book. And Hilary Mantel was perhaps the most voracious childhood reader of all time. But even when she was small, she mentioned about how she once came across a bit of Shakespeare. It was from Julius Caesar, and it was the speech by Mark Antony, the friend's Roman's countryman. It goes on, what, a paragraph or something. And because she was small and she had heard of the complete works of Shakespeare, she assumed that that was the complete works of Shakespeare and felt very pleased with herself that she'd now read the complete works of Shakespeare. And that was a brilliant mind kind of piecing together the world of reading and she got it horribly wrong. So I think children, they do sort of a bit more of a shove in the right direction. You might get a lot more reading out of them. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's something that we do a lot in the shop is try to introduce kids to series and if you like this, you'll like this. That We, we have a lot of those kind of conversations. Mm. We hear time and time again from parents and from grandparents and from family members that that's the thing they really like about bringing the kids into the shop yes. to kind of get that insight. Interesting what you said about The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe because I had exactly the same experience. I didn't have it read to me but I read the book and I think it was a good few years later that I realised it was part of seven book series. Had no idea. Mm. And it's not even the first one, is it? No. <laughs> that's what's strange. And I'm sure, you know, working in a bookshop, I used to work in a bookshop, it's my Saturday job when I was at school and you would get these children come in and very shyly and sheepishly say, have you got any more books about William Shakespeare or whoever it was that they were looking for and very sweetly trying discovering that world of books for themselves but these things do endure and there's a couple of things that I thought of one was you know I read Ladybird books like everybody else one of the Ladybird books of the time was called The Policeman I'm sure you remember which had you know a standard 1950s 1960s copper on the front pointing seriously in a particular direction and the whole thing was about that brand of a policeman as this is the person you can turn to in times of trouble they'll always give you the right directions they'll instantly blow a whistle in times of trouble there's post-war view of the policeman. Anyway, when I was a teenager, I used to go to punk concerts in Cambridge in the late 70s, where there's often a bit of trouble around the venue. And And there was one night when I'd come out, I was with a couple of school friends, and there were a couple of squaddies ran across the road and just started attacking us, beating these friends up. And so while they were being given a vigorous kicking in a shop doorway, my instant thought was, I must go and find a policeman. And so I did, you know, I went off. And I'm sure that is pure ladybird. That book would have completely contributed to that behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't know where else I would have got such ideas from. (laughs) It's the osmosis, isn't it? It all appears at some point (laughs) in you. (laughs) Well, it is interesting, isn't it? Because in times of panic, in times of extreme pressure people do odd things so it kind of makes sense that in times of great drama the brain turns to ladybird education <laughs> and of course those books have had a resurgence in the recent past with the slightly tongue-in-cheek versions which we absolutely love in the shop quite a whole new generation of seeing them in a different way. <laughs> the other point I was going to make about how children just need a bit of a push with reading, just a slight tap at times. When I was about seven, I remember I fell off my bicycle and really tore my knee up and I was out of action for a few weeks. Cycling was off the menu for a while and so I had my leg up on a stool or something like that. The day after I had the accident, the boys I'd been with came round to bring me loads of sweets and they also brought me an Edith Blyton book and it was a big thick one with a hardback cover. So it felt like a serious book and I don't think I'd ever read 
read anything that felt like a proper novel at the time. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to read that. But I sat down and started reading it. And I thought, wow, this is great. It's about a circus or something like that. And I think that was probably the first proper solid hardback novel that I read. And it made me think, well, actually, I can do this. you know. And it was only because of that accident that I read it. But obviously, I could have done it all along. And so again, with just that push in the right direction, or rather, if it weren't for that push in the right direction, maybe I wouldn't have been doing a literary magazine now. That's funny, isn't it, how things turn out? Quite. I'll talk about the literary magazine. Fast forward to the present day. You live and work in North London, and you're the creator and the editor of Strong Words magazine, Mm. which we've already talked about briefly. Where did the idea of this magazine come from? Well, as you mentioned, I've been in magazines all my life, and I love doing magazines and I can't really do anything else. I like being a journalist. I still think it's the greatest profession. And I feel, you know, that's all I really want to do is magazines. But the magazine industry has not enjoyed the happiest of times in the last couple of decades. It's been absolutely destroyed by technology. And people just don't have the kind of gaps in their lives anymore that magazines used to occupy. Mm -hmm. So I thought, if I want to do one, maybe I should try and do one on my own. Technology makes such a thing possible now. And I like reading books. And if I were unemployed, then I would probably just be reading books anyway. So why don't I try and do it? So I write strong words myself. It comes out nine times a year. It would come out more often if I were able to actually read books any faster. It was really just a way of trying to make a living doing something that I really like doing and providing a service, telling people about new books in a way that makes them think books are for pleasure and they're not homework or some solemn duty or this kind of thing, which a lot of reviews I think make books out to be. And yeah, just try and survive professionally by doing such a thing. Yeah, it's been pretty well received. I mean, Elizabeth Day, who we've had as a guest on this podcast previously, has been quoted as saying it's genius. Sebastian Folks calls it a must read. I mean, you're getting some really great accolades for the work you're doing, and I think it's fantastic. And there's over 100 books featured in every issue. And as you say, because you're the person that puts it all together, that's a lot of reading you have to do. Um, How do you structure your day to make that happen? Well, just, you know, start early and read all day and then write. I mean, I know how to do it. And the technology makes such a thing possible. I have somebody who comes and designs it for a couple of weeks, every issue. That's one thing that I can't do. But everything else is within my range of ability. So it's just a question of hard work. And I think that the key to being able to apply yourself over a long period of time to anything is imagination in that if something sparks your imagination, then you can do it. You can find the concentration and it becomes important enough to spend hours and hours doing. Whereas other aspects of it, like, for example, anything to do with technology, e.g. a website, I'm a sort of skeleton covered in cobwebs after about five minutes. I just die of boredom. And that's purely because I'm doing it out of sense of mulish duty rather than because it sparks my imagination anyway. So because I love books and because they are so fantastic and because they do have such a sort of profound effect on people, whether that's as a work of art or a piece of journalism or a book of pictures even, I find it personally easy to sustain the concentration, the application. Yeah, if you're, what is it somebody said, wasn't it? it was, if you do something you love for a living, then you never work a day in your life. You know, being able to actually apply something that you really genuinely enjoy. It's fantastic. Quite. You're clearly one of the most well-read people I've ever met. Um, what was the last book you read? Well, at certain phases of the magazine, I have to read a book a day to stand any chance of filling the pages with new stuff. So... Today, I'm sort of about halfway through a book by an Argentinian writer who I'd not heard of before, a woman called Eloisa Diaz. And her book is called Repentance. And it's a sort of crime police novel. But Argentina is one of those countries that I just find endlessly fascinating. 
And I really like the people. I think that mixture of Italian descendants and they're obsessed with psychotherapy and a bit European and a bit South American. And there's just something about that country which I find really intriguing and charming and obviously massively corrupt, which always makes for interesting reading. And also one of those countries that in its past has turned feral on itself, you know, attacked its own citizens. So absolutely shocking record of human rights abuses, which I think is always worth. It's hard to sort of avert the gaze when countries are doing that to themselves. So this book deals with a mixture of Argentina today and Argentina during the last military dictatorship in the early 80s. And it's absolutely fantastic. It's not out at the moment, but I think it's coming out in February. It's called Repentance. So yes, I would hugely recommend that. And how do you choose which books you're going to select for the magazine? Is it a case of you get sent a whole bunch of stuff and you just kind of pick and choose or do you actually go out and actively look for them? It's a mixture of both. I go through all the catalogues. You know, you can look at the published catalogues online and see what's coming up. So I pick the ones that I think are going to make a good spread, a good mixture of content, and then publishers are kind enough to send in review copies. And so, yeah, it's a mixture of the two. One problem is I get sent quite a lot of books on spec Mm -hmm. and they just pile up. During lockdown, there is no way of getting them out. You know, I used to be able to sell them or I'd give them away or take them to charity shops or whatever. And now they are just piling up. It's like some weird book depository that is just taking over my flat. (laughs) Yes. I'm laughing because that's exactly what our stockroom in our shop looks like. Yeah, I'm going to have to start making furniture out of it, I think, and then (laughs) sandwiches after that. Do it. I'd love to see the outcome. I'm always interested in hearing what book has had a major impact on an individual's life i have a theory that everybody as a reader has got a book that they can say had a pivotal impact Mm. do you have a book like that and if so what is it well there were three books that i thought of and just kind of thinking about how books affect people i think they affect people's lives in a very subtle way but a very enduring way don't they it's not as though you read a book and suddenly the world is different when you get to the end of it They affect people in ways that are often quite unconscious, I think, or that you don't actually realise the profound effect it's had on you until 40 years later you realise you're still thinking about this book. The three, really, that I picked out, one is the complete works of Nathaniel West, who's writing in the 1930s. And I picked him because as an example of somebody who appears without trying to just cram so much into a paragraph. He only wrote four novellas. They're very short. And he writes about the sort of delusional nature of rather seedy people, which I think is always a really interesting theme. But this idea of show, don't tell, give the impression with your words rather than try and explain it literally. And that genius of style, quite funny, very atmospheric, was such that when I made the mistake of once trying to write a novel, I actually put his books on my desk in the hope that somehow his words, his style would travel across the desk and magically transform my gormless words as I put them into the computer. (laughs) And it didn't work. But if I could somehow hold Nathaniel West's book against my computer, like an oyster card or something like that, (laughs) the magic would go. That's what I would like to happen. So that's one. And the next one I think of is Edward St. Aubin's Patrick Melrose books, those five books, which are about his awful childhood and then drug-addicted young adult years. And the reason I like this is because there's that fantastic George Orwell comment where he said, autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. And I think readers are prepared to go to the very limits with writers if writers are prepared to put everything out there and share the most shameful, humiliating or dreadful things that they've done or had done to them. You know, readers have a limitless threshold for that, whereas for writers, obviously the hardest things to put out there. 
Whereas when writers sort of pull their punches a little bit and hold back, and you can tell they're holding back, then I think they fall very quickly in, in readers' estimation. So Edward St. Aubin, describing his absolutely dreadful childhood, being abused by his awful, awful father and his just dreadful family, must have been the kind of thing that most people would think, I'm keeping that locked inside, whatever the psychological costs are, mm -hmm. that's staying in. But he brilliantly, very funnily, and very archly captures this quite dreadful experience. So I hold him in the highest regard. And then the third person I thought of is Rebecca West and her book, Grey Lamb and Black Falcon, which is in complete contrast to Nathaniel West, because this is an absolute monster of a book. It's about 1,200 pages long. <laughs> And it's about her travels in Yugoslavia before the Second World War. And why I think this is such a brilliant book is I love books that kind of fill a big gap in my knowledge. And I knew nothing about Yugoslavia. You know, I might have been able to find the capital on a map or something like that. But apart from that, absolutely nothing. So wanting to know why is this part of the world always in such turbulence? Why do certain bits of that country despise each other so intensely? You know, what is Montenegro? All these things are just done so brilliantly by her. She drives around in a car and meets people. So it's a great piece of travel writing as well. But just explaining things, like there's a brilliant explanation of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which is one of those things that you know as a sort of fact and a date, but she spends about 100 pages describing it in the most brilliant, gripping, informative way. So just as a work of ambition, I really, really admire writers who are massively ambitious. I'd like to see more writers being a bit more ambitious. It's funny you saying that, actually. We have a book group at the shop, which has kind of grown throughout lockdown, which we're now doing all virtually. And some of our readers the other week read A Thousand Splendid Sons. And we had that exact same conversation about how brilliant it can be if you can read a book that can educate you on something without it being a formal educational text. Mm -hmm. In the same way as you're talking about learning about a whole part of the world you didn't know about, these guys were saying that they felt the same about learning about Afghanistan. And I just think that's such a powerful thing within the world of fiction. I mean, and nonfiction as well, but I think fiction, if you're someone that doesn't necessarily feel like you want to sit down and read a history book by being able to read something that's been scoped into a particular format that works for you, just opens up the world to you, doesn't it? It's amazing. Quite. Certainly, I find myself a little bit in awe of people like that. And and that is often enough to just want to know more of them, read some more pages. You know, if they're brilliant at explaining something or describing something. Yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. And I'm kind of in awe of everybody who's able to write a book and get it published, you know, get it through that absolutely brutal process of years of labour, more years of absolute misery trying to find an agent, more years of dealing with a publishing company any books ever should emerge from that rather savage process is astonishing. So I hold anybody who can get a book published in the very highest regard. But I think a bit too often these days, I find too many books getting through where writers seem to think that they are, it's kind of interesting enough in themselves. Just the fact that they've written something is interesting. I think it takes a bit more than that. So when I see writers really giving it everything, gigantic ambition, and really intense putting everything into it, then I take all my hats off to them. Yeah, and I always think it's interesting when you talk to authors who have been working on their debut novel for 10 years and they've been through the publishing process and the novel does so well that they're then told that they have to turn around the next book in, what, eight months or something. And it's so interesting speaking to people that have gone through that process because it's a very different way of working, isn't it? You can be very creative and it can weave 
weave its way if you've got your own time frame to then be able to have to do it on demand is like you say it's a brutal industry and i think people are very robust coming out the other side quite well i'm always fascinated by that by just how long it does take to write things so Again, in strong words, in that feature I mentioned earlier, the how to write, the very first one I did, and it was because of this sort of fact that kind of inspired the idea for the feature, was The Day of the Jackal by Frederick Forsyth, which he wrote in, I think, 30 days or something like that. It's some ridiculous act of speed writing, which he did, according to him, because he was broke and he had no job. So he sat down on January the 2nd, whatever year it was, and by the beginning of February, he'd written this entire fantastic novel. But obviously, building up to that, there were several years of being a foreign correspondent and being around General de Gaulle and all the things that he witnessed that enabled him to kind of think, well, if I were to assassinate General de Gaulle, how would I do it? So it's not as though he sat down with just a blank piece of paper and an empty head and thought, well, what shall I write about? And 30 days later came out with The Day of the Jackal. You know, there's this gigantic sort of stewing process that has to happen for any book to emerge. Yeah. In fact, one of our regular customers has had a number of books published and he came in to see us when we reopened. And I said to him, what have you been doing? And he said, I wrote a book. I sat down and did it. And we had that exact conversation about the fact that I was pretty gobsmacked. I thought it sounded fantastic. Right. But he said exactly that. He said, yes, I've sat down and written it, but it's something that has been flying around somewhere on the peripheral for quite some time. I guess it's just pulling it all together, isn't it? <laughs> quite. And also, you know, another book that I wanted to mention, which a lot of people are reading at the moment, is Shuggy Bain, the book of winner, and just how Douglas Stewart wrote that kind of in his spare time. Another book of tremendous ambition, but it took him 12 years to get that down, just working up evenings and weekends and becoming obsessed with actually articulating his experience through a novel of what it was like to grow up with an alcoholic mother in extreme poverty in Glasgow. And, you know, again, 12 years, that's quite a tall mountain to climb, but he became so obsessed with it that it happened. So from Frederick Forsyth's 30 days to Douglas Stewart's 12 years, there's obviously no reliable method, but I think both of them, in their own way, must have spent years writing those books. Yeah, Shaggy Bane, I mean, what an absolutely brilliant book. Um, it's done incredibly well for us over the last couple of months, and rightfully so, very well-deserved winner. Quite. So obviously you read for your magazine and you're a voracious reader. Do you manage to read for pleasure as well, or do you still, <laughs> do you very much associate it as a job now? Well, I mean, if I had any spare time, and I don't, the last thing I would do is read more books, I think. But what I am able to do is because I walk quite a lot and I listen to audiobooks. So sometimes I listen to audiobooks, which then go into strong words. But because I'm always working into the future, sometimes those audiobooks aren't available. Mm -hmm. That's the only time I get to go back and listen to things or consume things that aren't due out next month. For example, I'm listening to the Jessica Mitford autobiography at the moment. I think like most right-thinking people, I find the Mitfords absolutely intriguing and they never become dull. So it's a real pleasure to listen to that. There's something really lovely about an audiobook versus a physical book. I'm a massive fan of the physical book, but I'm also totally in your camp about audiobooks. I think particularly when you've been sitting and reading a book or sitting at a computer for a long period of time, um, being able to, like you say, go for a walk and listen to it, it just it enables you to switch off while still enjoying a good book. I think there's a lot to be said for them. I completely agree. And I can't understand this debate that people insist on having that listening to a book is somehow cheating, that it somehow doesn't count. That it's as if the information has gone in through the wrong orifice, the wrong process or something. It's just, anyway, I've got no time for that. If anyone wants to fight on that one. <laughs> 
take them on any time, anytime, anywhere. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Is there a particular genre of books you enjoy? Well, I really like true crime and I really like journalistic things. So people who have taken the time to do some really impressive long form journalism. So there's a book which is coming out in February, I think the beginning of February, which has just blown my mind off its hinges, which is by a French journalist called Florence de Changy. And she is a journalist for Le Monde, but she's based in Southeast Asia in Hong Kong. And she has written a book about the disappearance of flight MH370, that plane that just vanished into thin air and they still don't know where it is. This book is a journalist sitting down. She's got great contact. She's a proper journalist. She knows people high and low. You know, she knows ministers and she knows people in the street. And she has pieced together a hypothesis as to what has happened to this plane. Because as she quite rightly points out, planes don't just disappear. We've seen there's a plane crash just a few days ago, but already they're finding bits of debris in the sea. They've got cameras on the floor. They know where it is and they know what happened. But this one flight, MH370, has just disappeared. And those things do not happen. So there is no equivalent instance of a plane just vanishing into nowhere. And obviously, this sort of implication that there's perhaps some Bermuda Triangle thing going on or whatever gets people excited. But I think she says this is just an insult to human intelligence that a plane could vanish. So she has come up with this extraordinary hypothesis as to what happened. So books like that, I absolutely live for and I hugely recommend it. It's called A Disappearing Act. And I think it comes out on February the 1st. Yeah, I think I've already ordered that to come in, actually. It absolutely appeals to me as well, that kind of thing. And I think somebody who's actually taking the time to really dig into it, because as a very neutral observer of these kind of things, somebody who hasn't spent the time thinking about it, it's still absolutely fascinating to think about what could have happened. Quite. But to be able to really dig into the detail. Exactly. I mean, one of the great things about books, and especially sort of journalistic books, is they just make you realise how much of the world you think you understand by knowing a couple of half facts and filling some of the gaps in with your imagination. And the more you read, the more you realise, well, actually, pretty much most of what you know is like that. You might know a couple of dates or you might know a couple of things that happened, but really you just kind of piece these things together with a great deal of optimism. So with that flight MH370, I think most people think that it's something to do with the pilot. Didn't the pilot have some kind of breakdown or wasn't he perhaps radicalised? And just that piece of knowledge or that piece of information that people think they've got is enough for people to think they know what happened. And it's absolutely scandalous that we're so complacent about things like that. That uh, Yeah, yeah, I know all about that. Yeah, but nobody knows about it or only a tiny handful of people know about it. But we're quite sort of happy with that interpretation of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Just talking about your magazine, Strong Words, for a few more minutes. Mm. Your magazine, as you said, people can subscribe to it through your website. It's a print magazine. Yes. So what impact has coronavirus had on the process of putting your magazine together? How have you found this last year in relation to your business? Well, the actual business of producing Strong Words hasn't been affected in the slightest by lockdown because I just sit in a room, read books, write about books do a bit of research and watch interviews with authors online. And so those kind of things, honestly, the world outside my apartment could have been folded up and taken away and put in a warehouse for all I know. You know, <laughs> who knows what's going on out there. But the things that are really different are the ability to sort of interact with, say, going to book launches. And, mm-hmm. you know, I will go and have a glass of warm Prosecco at the slightest provocation. You know, it doesn't take much to get me to <laughs> go along to these things. And so I really miss that side of things. 
you know, just it's good to be among people and hear them moaning about the world or saying, well, this happened to me. That's kind of the stuff of life. And I think authors really miss that because it makes them feel that everything before COVID now feels like science fiction. It's the idea that 100,000 people could gather in a field to watch a band feels itself like it's something that somebody once imagined, but you can't actually do it anymore. Mm. And when authors sort of, I love it when they say things like, yeah, I work every day. I sit down every day and I work and I do at least... 500 words. Good for you. But the important thing is that authors then go and spend the rest of their time accumulating all those observations and they go and have an argument with someone or they go and have a drink or that. You know, all those things that distill down into their fabulous books and those things aren't able to happen. So I really miss just being able to go and have a drink or dinner with someone and complain about other people. <laughs> yeah, these industry events are actually just an amazing opportunity for a great night out. We're not going to sugarcoat it, but actually just a brilliant way to meet people. It's like we were talking before we started recording. I've been in this industry for just under four years. And before that, I was in a very different world, corporate world, which had a very different kind of feel about it. And I remember going to my first ever book launch and just being completely blown away by how lovely and friendly everyone was and how completely approachable everyone was as well. And I find we do a lot of the book launches, but we also, the Booksellers Association, do a huge amount for us as booksellers where they get us all together and there's a lot of exchange of ideas and a lot of authors come and meet us. And those kind of events, you can walk away from two days of that kind of thing and just have so much to work with. Like you say, it's completely invaluable. I can't wait, <laughs> can't wait for it to be happening again. Quite. Well, obviously, a big part of any business or commercial activity is marketing, which I don't excel at. I wish I were better at it. But a big part of Strong Words marketing is going to festivals and events and telling people about it and putting it in people's hands and trying to sell a few copies. So in that sense, the lockdown has been not good for Strong Words. But it's a bit like we were talking about earlier. It just means I have to try and be a bit more imaginative about the ways in which I do sell the magazine. So it's not all bad, but you definitely need an outside world in order to produce anything of value from writing or publishing, I think. Mm -hmm. So what does 2021 look like for you and for Strong Words? Well, more of the same, really. Just it, like I said, it comes out nine times a year. My goal this year is I've proved to myself that I can produce a magazine of really high quality that people really like. The reader testimonials of Strong Words blow me away, just the effect that it has on people and how Positively, people have responded to a magazine which takes their love of books seriously. So it doesn't speak down to them. It's entertaining to read. And they end up reading books that perhaps they wouldn't have sampled before. And they find themselves able to recommend books to other people that they wouldn't have been able to do before. So it's, it feels like it's both entertaining and useful. And so I feel that as an editorial product, I'm really happy with it. The thing that I've so got to work on is the marketing of it, the selling of it. So I just need more people to buy strong words. So if we can talk again on December the 31st, hopefully by then I will be talking to you from a yacht off Monaco or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll have that conversation as long as the conversation's in person. Right. Um, I, I expect an invite on to said yacht. I'll have you brought over by a uh, fur-lined helicopter. <laughs> Fabulous. Sounds great. <laughs> well, Ed, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. It's so interesting talking to somebody who's got a different perspective on the world of publishing. Somebody who obviously really just absolutely loves books, but has taken a really interesting approach on how to apply that. So, Thank you so much. And best of luck with Strong Words in 2021. It is a really great magazine. So I highly recommend anyone goes out and grabs a copy. And thank you for your time and good luck. It's my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for having me on. And I'd just like to remind people that it's strong-words.co.uk.
and everybody is welcome to subscribe. Thanks. My pleasure. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.